Bibles to Mark chapter 9, verse 38. That's where we'll be at tonight. And uh, last week we started the section where Jesus has been teaching his disciples. You remember with me, if you will, that basically Jesus had come down off of the mountain. He had come down off of the Mount of Transfiguration. And as, as he did that, he was, uh, they had this journey that they took from Mount Hermon all the way down to the south, not the south of Israel, but quite a, quite a journey. It looks like about 50 to 60 miles from Mount Hermon down to the area of Capernaum, which was on the north end of the Sea of Galilee. And as you remember from last time, I did a little bit of a, a short, shorter message kind of talking about the attitude of a servant and what it means to be not only a Christian, but to get fellowship as a Christian and, and why we are doing what we're doing. We're starting a church not just so that we can gather in these, this glorious building here, but we know that the church of God does not consist of brick or metal. It doesn't consist of a, a building or even chairs. It consists of the body of Christ that is inhabited by the Holy Spirit, each one individually. And so as we know that, we know that when Christ comes to, into a life, that life starts to look more like Christ. He starts to change us into His image. We don't mold God into the image that we think that He should look like because that wouldn't be a false God. But He molds us into His image and makes us be a reflection of the glory of God the Father. And so as we know that, we need to know what it means, what, what kind of attitude a Christian should have. And so the disciples had asked this question, and they were arguing along the way. They said, who is the greatest? Who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of God? And of course, Peter, James, and John, just going up on the Mount of Transfiguration, getting to see some of the healings where no one else was able to be in there with Jesus when he did them. Uh, Peter, James, and John probably had this thought inside themselves like, well, you know, it's probably going to be one of us three. I don't, I don't want to brag, but, you know, Jesus lets us see some of the best stuff. And so, uh, but Jesus kind of rebukes them in a way, and he corrects them, really, because he loves them enough to say, hey, your idea about being great is kind of the wrong idea if you want to be a part of my kingdom. And so he shows them there in uh, Mark chapter 9, verse 35, that if anyone desires to be great, to be first or the greatest, they must become servant of all. So if you're up for it that way, if you want to come in through that way and you want to serve all men and women and you want to be a part of God's kingdom that way, then you might be in, in the running for the greatest. Now, you won't be the greatest because who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of God? It's going to be Jesus. He's going to be the Lord over all. But another way, he says in verse 37 in chapter 9, he says, Whoever receives one of these little children in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. This seemingly has nothing to do with answering their question about who will be the greatest in the kingdom. But then if you look at the parallel account that we have in Matthew chapter 18, verse 1 through 5, it says, At that time, speaking of the same time that we're studying today in Mark, at that time the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And then Jesus called a little child to him. He set him in the midst of them and he said, Assuredly, I say to you that unless you are converted and become as little children or like them, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me. So in order to have the attitude of a servant, you must, number one, be humble like a servant. And you must be humble like a child. Humility. 
Do you know how humility comes? Do you know how we become like a servant or like a child? Well, the root word in humility or humble is what something we really don't like, and that's called humiliation. Jesus himself conformed to what God called him to, not so much by being a conquering king, but by being humiliated. He fulfilled his call in the kingdom of God, and he started the kingdom of God by laying down his life, not only laying down his life, but being completely humiliated even before his own disciples. So how much more sometimes we go through humiliation and we think, why would a God of love allow this kind of humiliation in my life? Well, he wants us to be humble. He wants us to be usable in his kingdom. And so as we continue this week, we will finish up the section where Jesus teaches them the attitude that should be evident in a servant of God. So immediately following this little talk concerning receiving children, he starts in verse 38. And that's where we begin today. It says, Now John answered him, saying, Teacher, we saw someone who does not follow us, casting out demons in your name. And we forbade him because he does not follow us. But Jesus said, Do not forbid him. For no one who works a miracle in my name can soon afterwards speak evil of me. For he who is not against us is on our side. For whoever gives you a cup of water to drink in my name, because you belong to Christ, assuredly, I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. I think it's easy for us as Christians to know how God possibly reached out to us and saved us and touched our lives and then think, well, that's the only way that God can possibly work. And that's where the disciples are at. They think, hey, look, we're the only people that God can use because we've been with him all this time. And oftentimes we kind of build ourselves up in pride thinking that God used us because we had something to offer him. You know, he, the disciples perhaps were thinking, well, God picked me because he saw how great my fishing skills were in the Sea of Galilee. And so at that point, he was like, you know what? He's going to make a great fisher of men. But it seems to me that he didn't pick them so much because of their strengths. He picked them because they were so weak. God didn't pick me to be a disciple because I had something to offer him. He picked me because I had been broken enough times that I was actually willing to receive him. He picked me because he realized that I was finally to the point where I would surrender my life to him. And he humbled me. He allowed me to be brought low enough to where I would finally say, Lord, I've tried everything else. Will you please just take over because I've screwed this up enough times. And so these disciples, they're not thinking that yet. They're still thinking, hey, God picked us because we're great. And they see these other guys being used greatly by God, casting out demons. And as they cast out demons, John sees them and he says, we forbid them to do that. I think that's kind of funny. We do that oftentimes. We go, God's using that person. We don't see it as God using them. We'd say, that person's overdoing this and they're not supposed to be doing it. They don't have the authority. But it's funny to me because Jesus had already given the disciples the authority to go out to cast out demons in his name. And if you remember like three or four weeks ago, as they were coming down off the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus approached this group. It was the Pharisees and it was the other nine disciples that were still on the bottom kind of hanging out. And there was this man that had come to his disciples and said, my son, oftentimes he goes into these fits of seizures and I don't know what to do. He's been like this since he was born. And so I came to your disciples and I said, can you cast out this demon? And they were not able to do so. 
So the disciples had been commissioned and given authority by Jesus Christ to go and do that, and they weren't able to. And Jesus later told them that it was because these demons can only be cast out by prayer and fasting. They were relying on their own strength. So they weren't able to do it. And then later, in today's passage, they see somebody else able to do it. And the first thing they say is, we forbid them to do it. Now, how ironic is that? They see someone else being used mightily by God, and it's all, I don't know if they got jealous or if they just said, you know, they're not, they don't have the connection that we have with Jesus, and so they probably shouldn't be doing that. But what they ended up doing is if they stopped those guys from going out and healing people, they robbed not only the people that are being healed of a blessing, but they robbed those servants of a blessing. And we do that oftentimes, but it's not kingdom-minded. We have to be humble enough to realize that God can use anybody. He doesn't have to use you or I. And he's using many people in many different ways than we're even used to. You know, in foreign countries, he's using simple things like handing out wheelchairs to people that need them that can't afford them and don't have access to them. Here, if we did that, many people would scoff at us. Oh, they're just handing out wheelchairs. They're missing the point. They're supposed to share the gospel. But in different contexts, God uses different means to share the same message. He may change the package, but he doesn't change the message. And so Jesus stops and he rebukes John simply due to the fact that John, John has the wrong idea that Jesus is only into using their small group. God's work is so much greater than you and I can even fathom. Uh, just a number of times I've flown to different states within our own country. And as I look down, as the air, airplane's taking off or as it's landing, I look and I see a, a city as small as, like, you know, we think it's a huge town compared to down here in Ironton, Phoenix. Flying over Phoenix. And I was overwhelmed by the amount of houses, but more so, every house has a bright blue pool in it because it's so hot there. But as you look at the amount of pools, you can kind of see a little bit better from the air how many people there are. And then you realize you've been flying for a half an hour getting ready to land in a Phoenix. And the plane's going like 150 to 200 miles an hour. And you're still seeing houses. There's so many people. We think that we know how many people there are, and we can kind of get our head around it because we know the number, six point however many billion. But that's not even anything that we can consider. We don't know what that even means. It's not a number we've even seen before or been able to fathom. So God is so much greater than we are, and he's able to use many, many people. And it, you know, it just blows me away that I can be praying on this side of the world with my little, you know, like my trial that I'm going through. And yet he's listening to the 50 orphans that we got to minister to in India that are on the other side of the globe. And if they're praying at the same time, God can still hear us both. That, that blows me away. So uh, I guess the other way that we need to be humble based on this passage is we need to be humble enough to realize that God can use anyone. And if he so chooses humble enough to realize that we are a part of a greater team than just our little group that we know or our little group that we go to church with. I think it's important, though, to make the distinction that Jesus is not endorsing all who claim to follow him. Rather, this statement was meant to remind the disciple that God's work was not restricted to their small group. So verse, uh, let's see. Excuse me. So, so now that we have a better idea of what it means to be the greatest in the kingdom, or humble, seems to me that's the theme, we must contrast this with those who are in danger of eternal condemnation. 
because many spend their lives consumed with trying to become great in this life. And in doing so, they lose sight of God's plan, which is to exalt the humble. And they instead, in their exalting themselves, will be in the end, be greatly humbled. Those who are not humbled will pay the price in the end. So Jesus here is warning the disciples that the same pride that they have, these disciples, that's causing them to kind of want to be great in God's kingdom and and kind of make themselves prominent is the same pride that if they're not careful will lead them into sin and they won't even realize that they're so prideful that they the sin that that ensnares them will take them over and kind of cause them to to be judged so verse 42 says but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea so he's saying hey if you want to be the greatest in the kingdom and you get puffed up in pride so much that you begin to kind of uh lord it over people as some would do then you're in in you're in you're in danger of of judgment just as much for those jesus is speaking to here this would be a very harsh picture of being judged as a result of stumbling anyone who would believe in jesus and actually the new testament tells us that there shouldn't be many teachers be not many teachers because for those that teach there's a greater condemnation And so you see a millstone is what they would tie to an ox in order to have him drag it over grain in order to crush the grain and make it into meal for bread and other baked goods at the time. They couldn't go to the store and buy flour, so they would have to harvest that that stuff and then they would have to grind it into meal that was something useful. And these stones were about three to four feet across and about a foot thick. And if you were to have one tied around your neck, it would definitely sink you to the bottom of whatever body of water that you'd be thrown into. So this is a, a very harsh thing for him to say, but he's very serious about those who would lead children astray. And it always made me really nervous to read this passage when I was teaching scripture, especially with the children's church back at home, because you know when you're teaching children, they, they take things very literally and they listen to every word. And I think it's funny that oftentimes at the youngest and most impressionable ages, people just leave whatever on the TV or on the radio on. And what they don't realize is that children at a very young age are born to be basically like sponges. They are soaking up everything, no matter what you think that they're not soaking up. They're soaking it up at all. And it it makes me mad because there are certain uh, TV production companies and stuff that actually they lace in humor that's adult-driven humor And they're like, well, you know, it's for the adults that are bringing their kids, so they'll bring their kids to the movie. But the problem is, is that kids aren't dumb. Kids, in many ways, are not hardened to what's going on. So when you're watching a movie and there's children sitting around, they are soaking up every word and they're soaking up every idea. And though it may not play out immediately, the fruit of that root being planted in their heart will ultimately lead to something. It's going to bring forth fruit. You know, you reap what you sow kind of thing. And so... uh, He's saying anybody that would stumble a child or even someone with a childlike faith, there's a greater condemnation and they'd be better off if they would have a millstone tied to them and they'd be thrown into the sea. That's uh, pretty harsh. So verse 43 says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter into into life maimed rather than having two hands to go to hell into the fire that shall never be quenched, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. 
It's better for you to enter your life lame rather than having two feet to be cast into hell, into the fire that shall never be quenched, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Verse 47, And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hellfire, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. The instruction is to be absolute. Miss? That's almost causing you to have suicide in your life. Well, I'll explain that, okay? No, no, no. He's not being literal here. Then I'll explain that, okay? Okay. That's my question for you. As we read through this passage, are we literally called to cut off our hands, feet, or pluck out our eye if any of these cause us to sin? No. Because sin doesn't begin in my members. It doesn't begin in my hands. It doesn't begin in my feet. You know, if I, if I walk to some place where I should not be, can I blame my feet that I went there and sinned? No, because Scripture tells us that sin begins in the heart. So the instruction, though, is to, to be absolutely ruthless when, ruthless when it comes to dealing with sin in our lives. Oftentimes, we're ruthless with pe- people, other people. We notice their sins. Jesus tells us, he says, don't worry about the splinter in their eye. Deal with the plank in your own eye and then be ready to go and help them. So the answer is no. The reality is that your hand does not cause you to sin. Your foot does not cause you to sin. Your eye does not cause you to sin. Your heart, which Jeremiah, the prophet, writes, is deceitfully wicked, and that is where sin begins. Only God can know our hearts. The heart is what steers the mind. You ever notice when someone falls in love, all of a sudden they'll make decisions that are really dumb? For instance, you know, young guys that date, I want this, this, and this in a spouse. And all of a sudden, they'll change all those ideas because their heart will go, I love that person. And they'll, they'll be so overwhelmed with those feelings. Well, when those feelings are there, all of a sudden, the logic box, it's like it shuts off. You've seen this if you've seen teenage boys that suddenly meet a cute girl. All of a sudden, they make really dumb decisions. Well, that's because the heart always makes a convert of the mind. It takes what it knows and it goes, ah, it doesn't matter. My heart really wants it. Well, it wants it. It compromises because it's deceitfully wicked. It kind of is swayed by the wind. So what does God want to do with our heart? Our deceitfully wicked heart, he wants to change it. He replaces it with a new heart. He takes our heart of stone that was bent on sinning and he replaces it with a heart of flesh that's sensitive to the will of God. So that's why Proverbs chapter... um, something. Chapter 4, verse 20 through 26, uh, and 23 is really what I want to cap on, so I'm going to say that real quick. Proverbs 4, verse 23 says, keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it spring the issues of life. And then also, I think I have up there Matthew chapter 12, verse 34 and 35, that says, uh, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good things. And an evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth evil things. So if you're spouting off all kinds of stuff that's evil, then you got to know it's not because your tongue is all of a sudden loosed and you can't blame your face. You got to blame what's in there. It's not somebody else that caused you to say it. And so that's what Jesus is showing them here. 
you've got a sin problem, it's not because your hand, it's not because of your foot, it's not because of your eye. You're not looking at the things you're not supposed to be looking at, men, because your eye has an eye problem. It's because your heart is deceitfully wicked. James says that sin begins in the heart. And if it begins in the heart, each man is drawn away by his lust and the desires that are in his heart, and he's enticed. And when that happens and he succumbs to that temptation, it's because... He wants to sin in his heart. He needs it to be replaced with a godly heart. And so God wants to do that for us. Sin starts in the heart and it affects every aspect of our lives, including our bodies. Sin becomes so much a part of our nature that it's like a hand or a foot. We get so used to sin being there that when God convicts us of it and we're called to repent and forsake, literally walk away from it, it can feel like you're literally cutting off a body part. If you've dwelled in sin for so long and you try to quit the thing, you'll realize that if you try to quit it on your own, it's like you're literally trying to sever your hand from your arm. It hurts. It's like, I need that thing. And God's saying, no, you don't. Let go. But he alone is the one that can give the power to overcome sin. So, somebody prayed this this morning and I was going to read it. Um, It's funny, you know, when you study a passage and God can speak to you in many different ways, but it was a truth that I had learned before, but I was reminded of it as somebody was praying this morning because we oftentimes find ourselves saying, Lord, is this thing okay to have in my life or is this thing not okay to have in my life? What is your will for me? And he said this, if what you are doing is not causing you to grow closer to the Lord, then it is not something that you should be doing. And if what your family is doing is not causing them to grow closer to the Lord, then it is not something that they should be doing. And I thought that tied in perfectly because this passage says that if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If something in your life is causing you to, to go away from the Lord, to sin, to be separated from Him, cut that thing off. Flee from it. Because if it's not going to cause you to grow closer to the Lord, it's not going to be good for you. It's not going to be good for your family. It's not going to be good for anything that you do with your life. So, back to the passage. So, verse 49. Verse 49 says, For everyone will be seasoned with fire, and every sacrifice will be seasoned with salt. Salt is good, but if it loses its flavor... How will you season it? Have, have salt in yourselves and have peace with one another. So what he's talking about there is Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2 says, Therefore, uh, let me turn there because I don't have it quoted here and I will wrongly quote it and then I'll have the greater condemnation. <laughs> uh, Romans chapter 12. says, uh, I beg of you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So why do I read that? Because in the minds of those that read this passage, they'd be thinking about the sacrifices that were made in the Old Testament. They would take an offering, whether it would be something that they grew in the field, whether it would be grain offering or whether it would be a peace offering, whether it would be a a spotless lamb that they would bring. And they would 
they would prepare this offering and they would they would cut the skin off and they'd cut off all the fat and they would burn it before the Lord as a fellowship offering and then they would eat of the meat. And and every offering that was prepared and then burnt on the altar was something that was supposed to be prepared and set apart specifically just to be burnt and given to God. Well, our lives in the same way because of God's riches that he's given to us. Paul writes to the Romans there. He says, "I, I beg of you, brethren, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as living sacrifices to God, acceptable and holy, which is reasonable. It's our reasonable service. He laid his life down so that you and I could have eternal life so that we're called to basically out of freedom. We don't have to, but he says, give your life back to me as a sacrifice, a living sacrifice. So if we do that, he's not just like, give me whatever. He wants us to give him a holy sacrifice, a pure sacrifice. He wants it to be a meaningful sacrifice so that when it burns, it's that wonderful smell of barbecue on the grill that we always smell in in the summertime. And, And to him, it's a pleasing aroma. Now, he doesn't say, kill yourself and get on the altar and and die for me. What he says is he says, present your body as a living sacrifice. We don't have to die for our sins. He just says, lay down your life as a living sacrifice. And if we lay our lives down as a living sacrifice, here's what happens. He uses it. He says, thank you for giving me what you have, what I bought. Now I'm going to use it for my glory. And so when he says there that everyone will be seasoned with fire, he's talking about being refined. And when he says every sacrifice will be seasoned with salt, he's talking about it'll taste good. Do you know what salt does to a piece of anything that you eat? It doesn't give it flavor. It enhances the flavor that's already in that piece of food. And so salt, when we put it on there, it takes whatever flavor that that food has and it amplifies it takes a piece of meat and makes it so savory. It takes bacon and of course it makes it last longer and we can freeze it and prepare it. But man, bacon, whew, without salt, it's good. But man, with salt, it's way better. And so, <laughs> can I get an amen, right? <laughs> I'm just joking. So everyone will be seasoned with fire refers to the fact that we will all go through fire in our lives. Here's the bad news. For unbelievers... They will be seasoned with the eternal fire of God's judgment. For believers, though, here's the good news. It will be a fire of trials that will purify their faith in Jesus. This is good because the trials in this life drive us closer to the Lord when dealt with properly. And they remove all the misconceptions and the wrong ideas about the Lord that we have come to understand so that we come to understand more about who he is because trials cause us to want to know more about him. So salt, when pure and untainted, is a neat substance. It does several things that we're called to do as Christians. Number one, it preserves. It takes what is decaying, this world and our lives, and it preserves us until the time that we go to be with the Lord. It enhances flavor. That's what we should be. We should be the salt of the earth. It heals. Do you know when you take salt and you put it in something that's that's a wound or something, it hurts, it burns, but it also kills the bacteria and infection that's in that wound. And it also causes thirst. Do you know when your life is set apart to the Lord and you have joy through a, a bad circumstance, people want to know why. They want to know why in the world you have joy when you're going through a hard thing. 
And sometimes they want to know why you have joy when you're going through a really good thing and you're not distracted by it. You still only worship the Lord and not what he's given you. So uh, if we're watered down and we're tainted with sin, our salt is no longer pure. We will be We will not be a preserving agent in this world. We will not taste different than the rest of the world. And we will not be able to aid in healing in other people's lives. And we will not cause others to hunger and thirst for the relationship that we have with God. I didn't write, apparently I didn't write down the verse that I, oh, from 1 Peter chapter 1, I put a quote in here. Because Peter talks about trials and what they do for our faith talks about that purification that happens. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord, Lord Jesus Christ. I'll get to that part there. He start, it's okay. Leave it up there. Um, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His abundant mercy, He has begotten us again, He's made us born again, to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that's incorruptible, undefiled and that does not fade away it doesn't it doesn't disappear it's reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time so starting with verse 6 it says in this you greatly rejoice so I wanted to read that first part of the passage because I wanted to understand like this is what we rejoice in that he is begotten us again to a living hope that's undefiled that doesn't fade away it doesn't disappear So in this you greatly rejoice, though now, for a little while, he tells them, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. Here's why. That the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, you love. Though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved. And these various trials, what they're going to do is they're going to take your life and they're going to refine it. And at the appearance of Jesus Christ, when he comes back, whether you go to see him before he comes back, or whether you're here and you go to see him and he sees you, your faith, your trust in him will be refined. And do you know that your faith and trust in him, to him, is much more precious than even the purest of gold that's been tested? He wants us more than anything to trust in him. And so he tells us there to put away sin, to be ruthless with it. First of all, so that we won't be so prideful to think that God can only use me and no one else. And second of all, so that we won't live our lives dwelling in sin and causing ourselves to think that we're okay and being deceived and really we're overcome and completely enslaved to sin. So I guess my question for you this evening is, have you lost your flavor? Are you like the the sacrificial offering that has been presented and has been salted and it's ready to give to the Lord? Or is your life an offering that really isn't even worth offering? Is it something that you wouldn't even feed your best friend if they came over? Are you giving the Lord leftovers, basically? Is the Lord allowing the fires of life to season you? Are you going through a trial? 
Know that it's not for no reason. He's not just trying to allow things so that you get beat up. He cares about you enough to let those trials happen so that when they do, your life will be refined. It'll become pure. Do you know that he's trying to present us as the church, as a bride that's undefiled, wearing the white linen garments presented to our husband, Jesus Christ, at the day of his appearing? That's what he's preparing us for. In the meantime, making sense out of all of that while we're trying to live our daily lives, that's the trial.